Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind, episode 60. I think we're in a hurry to educate kids. And because we're in a hurry, we do it very badly. Being in a hurry pushes parents and teachers to want to correct the kid at every turn. Uh, We're in a great big hurry for some reason for kids to grow up and for them to uh, have the kind of education that an adult is supposed to have or a college student. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the luminous mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Steve Horwich. Steve is a professional educator for over 40 years. He's taught with a master's writing program at USC and for the LA Unified School District in private schools and for over 10 years. Then he gave up on traditional education to homeschool his two children. Now he's a homeschool advocate. He's the author of Connect the Thoughts, a comprehensive homeschooling curriculum for ages five through high school. He's also an Emmy award-winning author of musicals and plays and screenwrites with many credits. We've actually interviewed Stephen before. You want to check out episode number 40, which was released on May 29th, and you'll get a great introduction to Stephen. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me on again. (laughs) Well, like I said, I love your writing because you're just very direct (laughs) on what you think about education and homeschooling. Uh, Today we wanted to focus on, do you want to go ahead and tell us what we're we're going to talk about here? Oh, sure, I do. I want to talk about critique, the way critique and the critical approach is used in education and how it's so incredibly destructive of the student and even of the teacher and what the results are. We're talking about testing, grading. Yeah, tests, grading, but all kinds of things, even critique of the student's work by the teacher. For instance, when a student is asked to do creative work, uh, do something in creative writing or or sing or dance or do arts and crafts or any of that stuff, critique is the method most used by teachers because they've been trained to use it. And critique is incredibly destructive. It's, it's particularly destructive of an artistic instinct that a kid might have. But it's also destructive in terms of if you ask a student for their opinion of something, say they're studying history and you ask for their ideas about some aspect of history that they're studying, and they provide you their ideas freely, openly, they trust you to respect their ideas because you're a teacher, so they provide you that. And then you turn around and decide you're going to provide a critique or helpful suggestions or, you know, bigger and better ideas for that student to uh, think about, even though that student is nine years old and will be exposed to that history many times before they finish studying. uh, You're guaranteeing that that student is not going to trust his own instincts not going to trust his own creativity, not going to trust his own ideas. And at the very least, he's not going to express them to you anymore because he knows what you're going to do. You're going to critique them. Don't you feel like giving your students feedback is necessary? I mean, I mean, how would a teacher go about being able to kind of help a child progress and do mm-hmm. better? On, I mean, how do you propose that they go about doing that? 
Yeah, I do think a, one form, one particular form of feedback is necessary, and I think all other forms are not necessary and are destructive. The only form, the only approach that I think it's safe for a teacher to take and that will support the student and enable the student to grow as a person, not just as a student, is admiration. I ask teachers and I train teachers and I've written books about this to approach education by removing critique from the process. The critical approach to education is what I tend to call it. Uh, set it aside because it doesn't work. It's proven not to work. The test results and the general results from public education that relies very heavily on critique and that sort of thing have been a, a disaster. It's been a, an absolute crisis in education. What I ask teachers and parents to do is to genuinely admire the student's work, even if you find that a lot of their work is not particularly admirable from your perspective, being that you are uh, more educated than that 10-year-old. Of course, you are, or one would assume that you are more educated than that 10-year-old in, in various areas. To expect a 10-year-old to know what you know is not only foolish, but really destructive of the kid. Uh, he really will learn not to trust his own understandings of things if you keep correcting him with your understanding of things. Uh, but what you can do is look at his work, locate, target something in the work that you genuinely do admire, and there always is something that is admirable in a student's work, and express that admiration genuinely so that you support the student's creative instincts and their expressions and their understanding of the work because that's all they're getting back from you is support instead of helpful suggestions and critique. I think we're in a hurry to educate kids and because we're in a hurry we do it very badly. Being in a hurry pushes parents and teachers to want to correct the kid at every turn. No, you didn't write this well enough for a 25-year-old. I know you're 10, but you didn't write it well enough for a 25-year-old. Or your thinking on this part of history isn't college level, even though you're seven years old, so let's correct it. Uh, we're in a great big hurry for some reason for kids to grow up and for them to uh, have the kind of education that an adult is supposed to have or a college student. Uh, is supposedly gifted with not. and to think like an adult too you know and like that's like, right like to evaluate and think about it like in an adult term they are developmentally not able to do that yet well I, whether a child every child is different every student is different every adult is different and whether or not a particular child is developed sufficiently to think like that really isn't the issue. Uh, the issue is this, that the child in front of you is not anybody else. The child in front of you is the child in front of you. They are the student and they have whatever understandings and abilities and creative instincts and abilities that they have. They don't have any more than that and they don't have any less than that. So if you're teaching and you're specifically teaching that student instead of students or being a teacher, if you're looking at the person in front of you and what they already are capable of and what they're growing into, then you should not be expecting from them other than what they're capable of and what they're capable of today. To expect more than that is to really damage the student's self-confidence and, and his reach for his own education. If he knows that he's going to give you his best thoughts and his best ideas and his the best he's got, you're asking for it, he's giving it to you, and in return, what he's going to receive is critique. 
and that's going to be a consistent part of his education. I just gave you my best, and it was never good enough because what I always receive back from you, mom, dad, teacher, is a critique or helpful suggestions or any of that kind of destructive nonsense. I Let me tell you a story. I knew a um, couple uh, in Florida about eight, nine years ago who came to me and they were very concerned about their son. Uh, he was in his teens. And what they told me was he had he was very interested in writing. And he had started writing a novel. And he'd gotten quite far into it. And then he had just stopped. Absolutely stopped writing. One day, gave it up. Walked away from it. Did not continue. And they were very upset about this and very concerned. So I asked them some questions. And the first questions that I asked them all had to do with critique. I asked, uh, did you um, read his work? And they said, oh, yes, of course. And I said, did you offer him helpful suggestions on how he could improve his work? And they said, oh, absolutely we did. We certainly gave him that kind of input and suggested all kinds of ways he can improve his book. I said, uh-huh, okay. I said, did you correct his spelling? They said, well, yeah, there were a lot of spelling errors. And yeah, we did you know, make a list of spelling errors in the piece, and we had him correct those. And I said, great. And did you correct his syntax, the way he constructed his sentences? Well, you know, he's young and he doesn't construct his sentences perfectly. So, yeah, we had a lot to say about how he constructs his sentences and blah, blah, blah. Well, by the time I'd finished asking these questions, I, I was having a hard time not laughing because I fully understood why the poor kid had stopped writing. And I asked the parents, do you want him to continue his writing? Would you like him to pick it up again? Uh, and they said, of course, that's why they wanted to talk to me. I said, all right, here's what you got to do. You got to go home, sit down with your kid, and you have to eat crow. You have to apologize with tears in your eyes, on your knees, for critiquing the hell out of his work and correcting everything he was doing. You have to start with that. That's just the beginning of getting him to write again. But you have to let him know that you realize that what you did was not helpful, that it was not what he was asking for from you, and that it was uh, destructive of his drive to write. And then when you're done with that step, you read his work again and you find nothing in it that you're going to comment on or look askance at or anything. Uh, the only thing you're going to do, your job is to admire his work. Keep admiring his work. Admire every page. Admire every chapter. Admire the work. And if you do anything other than that, don't be surprised when he stops writing for the rest of his life. And do know that I will find you and I will hunt you down for what you did to your kid. So <laughs> I have to tell you, I've encountered this many, many, many times. And I've seen it work many, many times where, you know, kids stop creating, stop learning in a certain area, whatever the area was, uh, everything from, I've seen everything from math to writing and dance and singing. They stopped because they received too much help, too many critiques, too much hands-on, mommy knows best, teacher knows best, daddy knows best. I think that most, most children, most students of any age who receive that kind of critique incessantly feel like their work is never up to speed and and after a while they give up. But how would you how would you help a student improve though? I mean if if you're just always praising his work, how do you end up making a, a student that, you know, creating a helping a student be able to flourish and do better in writing yeah. and acting or 
How do you help in those? Yeah, ways? I, I well, I, I've been yeah, I've been teaching writing and acting and voice and you know for forty five years. Um, there are a number of ways you make a student better at these things. The best way is to have them experience these things. Get him up on his feet and let him do them and do them and do them. A very, very good writer, very popular writer, once said that if you want to teach somebody to write, what you do is you get them to sit at their typewriter and you get them to write. And when they're done writing, you get them to write some more. And when they're done writing, you get them to write some more. And after writing enough... They'll have found their voice, and they'll know how to write. I know for myself that was absolutely the case. Nobody ever taught me how to write, and I'm an Emmy Award-winning writer. Nobody ever taught me how to direct, and I've directed over 250 theatrical productions. Um, nobody taught me how to sing, and I've been teaching voice for 40 years. Nobody taught me to play piano, and I'm a concert pianist. So, you know, the experience that the student gets on a hands-on basis is his best education he will if he's interested if he cares he will reach for improved skill sets if he's interested he will look at artists who are successful in that art form and use them as his model most kids who are learning to do a certain art form select out a few models uh, people that they really admire who do that thing and at least initially uh, start their work by mimicking the artists that they really care about and, and um, that they're targeting being like. So I found myself that that's a big part of providing a, a student some kind of education. I think the same thing is true in math and science and history and every subject. You you want to let them have hands-on experience in the area. Uh, you want to let them see what people who are very good at the area actually do. How do they work the area? How do they express their skill set? And I think that when students see that, if they care about the area, they start to mimic and reach for that skill set. Now, frankly, if a student doesn't care enough about an area to want to do those things, to look at people who are expert at it or to learn more about it on their own or to get hands-on experience to improve, all of which are viable routes to understanding and skill, if the student doesn't want to do any of those things, then the student isn't interested in that area. And you, as a teacher, pushing him into that area are not only wasting your time, but by pushing him into an area he has not enough interest in to reach for for himself, it's a pretty good bet that he's not going to do well in that area. Yeah. Well, what do you think about like compulsory classes? I mean, we're all taught that we have to do, you know, English and we have to do math and we have to do science. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if children aren't exposed to these things, are they mm -hmm. ever going to pick up uh, a love for any of that? What do you think about some compulsory subjects like that, that all kids are required to do before they graduate type of attitude. Yeah, well, we're back to national standards. Uh, yeah, and that testing. Kind of, yeah, which we'll get into in a few minutes, uh, the testing and evaluation grading thing, which is a whole other discussion. But to your question, uh, what do I think about exposing a kid to subjects? I think when a student is young, when they're very young, the focus should be mostly on getting their reading skills up and then teaching them how to do research because if they can read, and if they know how to do research on the Internet, in a library, in a book, wherever they're going to do the research, then the likelihood is that they'll pursue any subject they're interested in without you having to push them because they'll be able to read and they'll be able to research the subject and they'll, from, they'll take it from there. Uh, but I do think that once a child can read early in their education and once they have some study skills, 
it is a good idea to introduce a student to as many subjects as possible. Uh, that would certainly include essential language skills and basic math and things that we need to get through our day. But what we tend to do and what national standards do is we don't make the introduction of subjects and a basic understanding of subjects the requirement. That isn't the requirement nationally or in any state in the United States. The requirements extend far beyond a basic understanding of math or a basic understanding of language into areas that a lot of students don't want to go and don't have any interest or expertise in. Whereas, that same student you're pushing into algebra and you're pushing into trigonometry or you're pushing into, you know, chemistry and physics if they have no interest in science, that same student might be tremendously expert in gardening or as an artist or as a singer or in some other area, you know, putting uh, auto engines together. And that's their calling. That's where their love is. That's where their interest is. And that's where they would invest themselves willingly and put in the hundreds of hours it takes to learn a subject and become expert in it. There was a statistic put out years ago. I, I think it's a, a ballpark figure, but it's as good as any. They said that to become an expert in a subject, you need 10,000 hours in that subject of study and hands-on experience. And I, I thought about it because I've spent most of my life educating myself in various areas, and I think it's a pretty fair number. To learn to play piano well took me about 10,000 hours of work. To learn to write well took me writing 20 full-length pieces before I got good enough at it that I felt I knew what I was doing, and that was probably about 10,000 hours of work. So, you know, and I think you if you ask a kid, you look a kid in the eye and you say, I want you to spend 10,000 hours studying a subject. He's going to tell you if, he's, if he cares about himself at all. That's great. I'm willing to do that if it's a subject I care about. Yeah, something I like. Yeah, mm. I right. did want to kind of share with you. Uh, last week, I was talking to uh, he. He's very skilled in sciences, you know, chemistry and different stuff like that. And he goes in and he trains some of these public educators in the sciences. He's been teaching for forty four years, and it's something he loves. He's passionate about. He's very entertaining when he does this. Anyway, but he said he noticed that in public education that he goes in, he trains the teacher, and then the next year they're the lead teacher. And then the next year after that, they're head of the department. And he was really critical of the fact that we push, you know, chemistry and some of those higher sciences that the kids may not have a love for. But then we're not even offering them decent teachers because we're so interested. We just have to have somebody fill the spot. It was kind of his take on it. I could not agree with him more. You know, I, I my own experience with LAUSD and, and with various school districts and, and that kind of thing is that they stick teachers anywhere and everywhere, regardless of the fact that that teacher has no expertise in the subject. Yeah, or Most no passion for it or, yeah. yeah no, no interest in it at all. I saw teachers being placed into, you know, teaching English classes, teaching science classes who had no expertise and who were reading the textbook at night trying to stay one chapter ahead of the kids. And the reason that happens is because to teach for a school district, generally speaking, only requires a degree in education. It does not require any kind of specialized degree in the subject you're teaching. For instance, if you have a degree in education, you can teach PE. It doesn't matter that you've never done a sit-up or a push-up or a manage the baseball team or anything else. 
you can teach English electives even if English is your second language and you barely speak it. And I had that experience when I went to the public schools as a kid of a teacher who did not speak a word of English who was teaching me English. She oh, only wow. spoke <laughs> yo. She only spoke Korean. She did not speak English. And I would go home. I was age six at the time. And I would tell my stepfather, he'd say, what did you learn today? And I'd say, nothing. My teacher doesn't speak English. And he would get very angry at me and occasionally strike me. And wow. then there was a, we had an open house at the school. He went, he met the teacher and he realized she didn't speak a word of English. So he thought you were lying or something? He thought I was lying. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying, you know, it was just another example back then even of a teacher being placed in a position where they had no expertise and yet they were given this job of teaching kids in a specialized area. Uh, she couldn't teach me how to read. She couldn't read English. She didn't have any ability to read or speak the language. She was just so, basically I, I, filling I, a, a chair, a teacher yeah, chair. Yeah, I think so, so that the schools can get paid because they get paid by headcount per yeah, class. Yeah. So, yeah. Before we go on, let us take a minute and hear about our sponsors. Hey, Firestarters, this is Mark, producer of The Luminous Mind. If you're like me, the thought of going out to the store and shopping is enough to make you want to crawl in a hole and hide. If that's you, then do your shopping online through Amazon. Just go to theluminousmind.net, click on the Amazon link, and shop away. Also, most of the books and resources that Rebecca and her guests discuss can be found on our Amazon links as well. Again, if you're like me, you have already accidentally signed up for Amazon Prime. So most of those purchases should have free shipping as well. Good luck. Voluminous Mind with Stephen Horwich on critiquing, grading, and testing. So you want to talk about testing. Are you ready to move on to that or, or sure, grading and evaluation? How does a public school, um, we are moving into kind of an area now, you know, with Common Core and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where they want to be paid by performance, like a performance pay. So yep. that makes the teacher, you know, they're very interested in how their students are doing on testing. What's your opinions on that? Well, I'll back up my opinions with facts in this case. When we talk about standardized tests, tests that are put out by school districts or more importantly by the uh, federal government and state government, we're talking about a, a system that has ruinously failed and has done a lot to destroy education. There was a case, what you're talking about is teacher incentives uh, where teachers get paid more money if their students score better on national tests or local tests, you know, state tests. Uh, there have been many, many cases across the country, and I'm going to use one in specific to, to paint an example, where teachers took students' tests and falsified the results so that they could get paid more money. One of the most public cases of that was a year and a half ago in Atlanta, Georgia, where 170 teachers plus got together at a principal's house over a weekend and took all the state and national tests that their students had done. We're talking thousands of tests, thousands of students, 
and erased incorrect answers, a percentage of the men put in correct answers because Atlanta had teacher incentive pay system where if the kids did better on tests, teachers got paid more. So what those 170 plus teachers who have now been to court, my understanding was at first that almost all of them had lost their jobs and then the school district reinstated them because they do not care about students. Uh, but uh, those 170 teachers did teach those kids. They educated them. What the kids learned is it's good to cheat. Cheating is good. You get paid more money when you cheat. That if even your opinion leaders like your teachers cheat, why why shouldn't you? Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I was I was actually reading somebody. I'm kind of scanning through my Facebook stuff, but you know, one of my teacher friends actually posted there was another incident just recently. Of, uh, I mean, of groups of teachers doing that. So, so what would you suggest then? I mean, how do we change that? Well, I don't think you change it by teacher incentives in terms of pay. Uh, you could invert that formula, and it might be a little more effective if students don't perform. You fire the teacher rather than paying them for good performance. But even that will encourage the teachers to cheat. And I have to tell you, there have been dozens and dozens of cases of this across the country over the last three years. A lot of this started in Washington, D.C. The head of the school district there is a a woman named Michelle Ree, and she really was the first large public figure to have this terrible idea of paying teachers more for performance on the part of the students at desks. It was uh, her horrible idea. She's been heavily applauded for it. And the results of it have been that educational results have diminished in the school, uh, every school district using teacher incentives. The the results have been horrible. Anyway, so what would I do? Well, you know, I, I mentioned the last time you and I talked a few of the things I would do. One of the things I would do is close all the public schools. I am a homeschool advocate. I am a private education advocate. I think the government does a terrible job in the area of education and always has. You know, in the 1860s, when public education became mandatory in the United States, the first day of school, very few children showed up and the government set out representatives to families to go get the kids and bring them to school. And they were met at the door by parents with guns who said, you will not be taking my kid from me to educate him. Now, I am a big fan of nobody owning a gun. I don't believe in private gun ownership at all. But I understand those parents. I understand their instinct. And here we sit, you know, uh, 170 years later, looking at a diminishing literacy from public education, diminishing skill sets, test scores that are dropping down the charts internationally for the United States because of public education. We've done a terrible job, and I don't think that the government is equipped, and I don't believe they ever were, to run an educational system. I don't think they know anything about education or care to find anything out. So I also think they have an agenda with public education that is destructive, but that's another issue. So what I would do is I would start by closing all the schools, public schools. I would have all the private schools move away from testing and grading and bell curves and standardized tests and student evaluations. I would uh, make those uh, really anathema where education is concerned, uh, which we can discuss. 
what I am envisioning is some of our our listeners, their jaws just dropping with what you what you just said. We're definitely pro homeschool here, but I know many of my listeners. I mean, our attitude is like, well, not everyone can do this, and yeah. we have a lot of people that are work, you know, dual income or single mothers or you know people that can't do that. I thought it was funny too, and during our last bond election, where they're trying to get more money for some of the local schools, I saw bumper stickers like, I support public education because I don't want to live in a world with stupid people. That was one that I saw. And then I saw another one, if you think education is expensive, you should try ignorance. (laughs) Right, well, I I agree with that. And, And I think we can take that and make it part of our argument. Ignorance is expensive, and public education results in ignorance. So, and it's very expensive to the tune of $550 billion plus a year of United States tax money. That's what pays for public education. On average, between 12500 and uh, I think it's, um, what was the last figure I heard, $27,000 per year per student for nine months of non-education in public schools. Yes, it is very expensive ignorance. It's resulting in the United States scoring in the lower 20s and 30s now in mathematics and science, even though that's the government's goal was math and science as established by George W. Bush, who said that was going to be the focus of education. And yet, our scores keep dropping in that area because public educators don't do these things very well. So, yeah, I think if you want to see a lot of stupidity, you'll continue public education. Homeschoolers score better on all the standardized tests than public schoolers do by quite a big margin. And as we mentioned the last time you and I talked, uh, most of the big universities understand that now and are actively recruiting homeschoolers because they know they're academically advanced over public education. Yeah. So, you know, well, and you're talking about uh, ignorance because most people, I mean, like some of the people driving around with these bumper stickers on, and they don't really care about the results of their public school. They're they're kind of like apathetic, you know, to what's going yeah. on there. The mantra we hear all the time is like, well, if you want us to do a better job, give us more money. I mean, we just keep throwing more money into that pot, hoping that we're going to get a better result. Wouldn't you say that after $550 billion annually that we've given them a fair shot and that this has been going for 170 years, they've been saying more money, more money, and they get more money, more money, and then the results don't get better for 170 years? I think that's enough of a test. I think they've had their chance many, many, many times over. And I think that the millions of lives they've destroyed by not providing education attest to their miserable failure and the fact that it isn't about money. It's about the way teaching is done. So now we're back to why you don't use a critical approach in education. And I guess we should probably get into that, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I do want to answer your other thing. For all you parents at home who both of you work, boy, do I understand that. I've written a lot about it, and I've dealt with a lot of homeschool families who have that same issue where both parents work. And money is an issue, and I understand. Well, you were a single father for I was a a single dad. My wife passed away uh, when my kids were 13 and 9. Up to that point, they went to private schools. After that, I homeschooled them and uh, raised them myself. So I understand. I know that it's a lot to confront. 
but it's very lazy to leave it up to others to educate your children, especially when those others have proven they can't do it. And in the end, you can form homeschool groups. If you get four or five families together, that's eight, nine, ten parents, uh, all of whom have different areas of expertise they can bring to the table to help educate the kids, all of whom have different periods of free time they can donate to that group so that there's supervision. Uh, it does not have to be that archaic model for homeschooling that I think people are afraid of, and rightfully so to some extent, of one parent, two or three kids, or one kid, that's the model. I think that's the hardest way to homeschool. The easiest way is to get together with four or five families and seven or eight kids and eight, eight, seven or eight parents and you know have meet at your house i did that for many years and it worked very very well yeah i heard this a lot when I first started homeschooling from people like well you know the public education and they think we're kind of fear-mongering in a way where the public education did an excellent job you know i'm an engineer or whatever now i went through the public school system what would your i mean i guess uh, ignorance is bliss i mean when they no 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 met, I, I, what's, I think i think there are people who come out of public education well-educated, and, and I can explain it with just a few sentences. Self-motivated students will do well regardless of how they're educated. It doesn't matter how they're educated or where they're educated. If you're self-motivated, as I was, you will learn things and do well. You will do it in spite of your public school education, but you'll still get an education. So I commend anybody. I went through public education. I'm not a product of private education, but I haven't stopped educating myself for the last 30 years since I left high school. And I certainly have learned a great deal more since that time than while I was in school. So... Anybody can learn under any circumstance. It depends on how motivated they are. And there are always going to be those self-motivated students who do well in public schools. And the schools will always point to them and say, see, see what we did. They didn't do it. That guy did it. That kid did it. He educated himself. He made sure that he knew enough to pursue the things he's interested in. And I think that can happen anywhere, including in a homeschool environment and even in spite of public education in a public school. Another thing that I hear a lot is like, well, if it wasn't for Miss So-and-so in the fifth grade, you know, this right. teacher, but I mean, we could still recreate those those experiences where children are put in front of excellent mentors, right? And and being able to help them have a love for something. I mean, Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of really good teachers, even in spite of the way public education is run, Every school has a few very fine teachers in it. You can't just paint all teachers with the same paintbrush and say they're all inept. It's not that they're inept. It's that they're unethical. All public school teachers are unethical. They are all contributing to a system and making it the best of them. The ones who know how to teach are making a system that has failed almost look like it works. And that is a betrayal of the public trust. Let it fail. Let it fall apart. And then as a wonderful teacher, go out and get yourself 30 private students and teach. A, you'll make more money. B, you'll have much more of an impact on the kids because you won't have to work within a system that forces you to test them and grade them and do all kinds of things to those kids that if you are a good teacher, you know is destructive. So good teacher, an ethical teacher leaves the system because they know it's destructive. One of the things that we talked about with this other gentleman last week, good teachers, they only stay in the system about three years. That's right. <laughs> before they're tired of the testing and, and all of the 
all of the, you know, they have to go through and quantify what they're doing instead of actually being able to develop curriculum or to develop systems on helping their students. They have to report to somebody who they want to know what you're doing, but they have no credentials, for, you know, to be able to, to quantify. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds about right to me, you know, that a, a, a teacher who really went in with the idea that they were going to teach and who cares about the student in front of them is not going to last very long in that system. And the ones who stay, no matter how talented they may be as teachers, are not ethical. And that is a genuine concern when people say there are good teachers. Yes, there are. There are teachers who changed my life. Yeah, I had a few too who really interested me in specific subjects that I've stayed interested in from that time. That's not to say I wouldn't have had that experience on my own because most of the experience I've had in those areas has been outside of school. But, you know, I recognize that there are teachers who motivate students well. I'm one of them. So I would say to a teacher like that, you need to do the right thing. Stop accepting the paycheck for half educating or not educating kids when you know the difference leave and let the system fail because it needs to fall away. Wow, those are some strong words. So when what do you mean by unethical? Like they're doing something unethical. I think it's unethical. You know, what are the ethics of a teacher? Well, you're being paid to make sure that a student experiences a subject, understands it, can work with it, can think with it and make it their own. That's what you're being paid for. You know, if you're a good teacher, what that looks like when a student's eyes light up, when they understand a concept, when they can suddenly work with an idea, you understand that as a good teacher. So it's unethical knowing those things to understand that you also have to give state tests and test and report cards and grade kids and use bell curves in some cases and do the standardized test for the, you know, and and deliver the standardized education from Common Core that's required now at every grade level. You know that you're not doing a good job teaching by doing those things. You know you're degrading your student. You know that you're limiting not only what they can learn, but what they can express, what they're permitted to express. And so you're not doing what you agreed to do. Your job as a teacher, you're not doing that job. You're doing an administrative job for the county or the city or the state or the federal government where you're controlling kids. That's unethical. You're taking a lot of pay because it is a very well-paid job for the most part. You're taking a lot of pay in order to not teach kids and to make sure that they don't learn. How is that ethical? I guess what I'm getting at what you're saying is that by doing all the testing and all of the critiquing and stuff, they're they're not teaching anymore. They're actually going against the process. Is that, I mean, mm-hmm. okay. Well, they're, they're stuck in the process. Uh, teachers who claim to care about their kids often complain about being forced to teach to a test. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, yeah. teach to a test, meaning Common Core, for instance, there are certain things we have to make sure we teach at each grade level, and there are going to be tests to make sure that that kid learned that subject in fourth grade at the right time. And so the teacher is forced to teach to the test to make sure that the kid learns what's on the test before he takes the test. So he passes the test, so the school gets paid for that kid being there, because if the school doesn't get that kid through the test, the school doesn't get paid, which is really what it's all about. So here's a poor, sad teacher, and I I don't have any respect for teachers who make that complaint, uh, who says they're forced to teach to the test. Yeah, they do have to teach to the test if they're going to abide by a system that does not have any interest in a kid's well-being. It's strictly an administrative boondoggle. And if that's what you choose to do, folks, teachers, 
teach to a test, then don't complain about it. You made a choice to be paid over educating a child. That's a choice you made when you taught to that test. Wow. So you don't have the right to claim. All right. So should we get into testing? You have more to say about testing? Well, there's evaluations. Yeah, you know, when it comes to testing and grading and stuff like that, uh, I always find it fascinating. I'm sure a lot of parents and a lot of your kids have had the experience of getting a bad grade on a test or a report card. Then the kid has to bring the report card or the test home to mom and dad. Mom and dad look at it and say, what do you mean you got 60% on this math test? And what is this? And why aren't you working harder? <laughs> and all that stuff. <laughs> but here's the real issue to that. The teacher and the school are paid lots of money, tens of thousands of dollars per student every year, paid lots of money to make sure that every student passes that test. And not just passes that test, but the idea was that the student was to understand the entirety of the subject being taught, which means that a student should be scoring 100% on all of their testing. If they're not scoring 100% on the testing, then that money that we gave that teacher in that school was wasted to a certain extent. My feeling is that if a student gets 70% on a test, the parent and the student should fold their arms, sit down with the teacher and say, why didn't you teach my kid the other 30%? What happened here? How did you go so wrong, Mr. Teacher? And when we don't do that, and when we accept the blame and then they send home homework for the family to do with the kid, hey, your kid only got 70%, your kid only got a a C in math this last semester, he's going to have to do extra homework. He's responsible. You, mom and dad, are responsible for your kid only getting a C in math. Even though they've been paid already. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. you're not responsible, folks. The school is. The school failed your child, not you. You didn't fail your child. Now, I could argue, and this is the hardest, edgiest part of the discussion, that mom and dad failed their kid when they put them in a public school. I could argue that once mom and dad know that public school works the way it works, that the ethical thing for them to do is to pull their kid out and homeschool or private school or find some form of private education that will work for their family situation. And I think it's a a fair and a right argument to make for the most part. So I don't know, you know, it's not even fair for the parent to complain about the school. At the end of the day, mom and dad, if you know the school isn't working, you owe it to your kid to get get him out of there and put him in a situation where he's actually going to learn. And if you don't do that, you know, and you say, well, our taxes pay for the school, so what? What does that have to do with your kid's future? If he's not doing well in school, if he's not learning there, it doesn't matter what you paid in taxes. It's not going to matter to him when he's 20 years old and doesn't have an education. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, as you were talking about teachers already being paid for a job that they're basically not doing, or the school is basically being paid for a job that they're not doing. I know when some of the free market virtual classes came online, at least in my state, they actually, they wouldn't pay those companies until the the child scored at least a certain amount on it. And it's interesting interesting that they held that virtual school to a standard that they're not even holding our traditional public schools to. Well, you and know? you know who made yeah, and you know who made sure that it went that way. That all unions. other yeah, of course, <laughs> teacher unions make sure through lobbying with you know tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars annually in lobbying in Washington to make sure that public education is protected at the expense of all other forms of education. So public schools get away with murder; they don't educate teachers. You know, hundred 70 teachers in Atlanta cheat on their students' tests and a year later are reinstated. That's a sure sign, folks, that the schools are protecting their own and do not care about your children. 
Yeah, they care about the teachers. Not that was one of the comments that I read on one of your articles is that he was uh, he was awfully concerned about you know uh, like endangered animals. We need to save the teachers. That needs to be the new cry. But what was your response to that? I loved it, and I can't rem- <laughs> remember what it was. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think we need to save the students from the teachers. What One of the things that I talked about, I think, in that article was that. Yeah, I think that's what uh, you they're said. Called, they're, yeah, they're called teachers unions. They're not called, you know, students unions. Students need a union to protect them from teachers. Teachers unions are not about taking care of kids. They're not about taking care of your kids. They're about taking care of teacher perks, teacher pay, teacher work hours, teacher working conditions, teacher, 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 not kids. Well, and in fact, they're almost more concerned about protecting their their rights as a, as a union. You know, they got to keep the public education going to keep the union alive, which, you know, that's supported by teachers. I mean, it's kind of this this really sick Ponzi scheme that we got going. Yeah, it, it is, and I agree. I think that's a good description of it. There are a lot of cases now, um, many, many hundreds of recorded cases of teachers who have been brought to court by students who were abused by the teacher, sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused by a teacher. And what the unions will do at that point is spend anywhere up to half a million dollars in legal funds to protect that teacher from being fired, being sent to jail. And at the very worst, what we tend to see after a teacher has abused a kid is they get moved to another school. Most school districts will not attempt to fire a teacher who abuses a child anymore because the district can't afford the law case. They can't afford to go to court and spend the kind of money that the teacher's union will spend to protect the teacher. So who's the loser there? Well, in tens of thousands of cases nationally, the kid who is abused, folks, your children, we're talking about your kids, the kid who is abused, the union doesn't care about him. They're going to protect the teacher. They're going to keep the teacher from going to school or paying any price for abusing your child. And your child will be stigmatized by that abuse because you went to court. Then they call it like the dance of the lemons. And then if the teachers are really bad, they don't want to even, if they don't even put the teacher with the children, they'll say, well, you can go and and go to this facility and they sit and play cards and they're all getting paid and they're getting increases and they're getting all of this stuff. Right. The school district can't fire that teacher. They don't want to go to court. They can't afford it. It's cheaper for them to pay this abusive teacher by the hundreds, by the way, abusive teachers. There was a report put out. They pay thousands and thousands. That's right. There was a report put out by the Department of Education in 2004. It's an interesting report. And if you dig through the internet, you can find it though it's been very carefully hidden. It came out and three days later it disappeared. In that report, it stated that somewhere between 6 to 10% of all students in public schools, and at that time I think it was 70 million, 77 million students, up to 6 to 10% of them, so we're talking about up to almost 8 million students, between 7 and 8 million students, would be sexually abused by a teacher during their 12, 13, 14 years in public education. Wow. Well, that's millions of kids being sexually abused by teachers, but we don't hear about it because the union buries it every time it happens because people are afraid to sue or take those teachers to court because it'll cost too much money. And those are the teachers who sexually abuse children, who abuse them in other ways, 
who are collecting their perks, playing cards in some office. Well, and the only way there's any accountability now is if a student carries a cell phone and videotapes the abuse going on, and then there's a kind of a grassroots uproar. You know, that's the only way anymore that you can go about getting rid of some of these teachers is actually catching it in the act, putting it on social media. So all your friends are so outraged that becomes this huge case. Otherwise, it will just be a hush situation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a teacher last year or the year before who uh, on her blog ranted and railed and said horrible things about her students. She got caught by the school district and insisted right up to the point where, you know, the school district was actually willing to take her to court and get to get rid of her. She insisted that it was her private communication. She had the right to do it as if the Internet is private. (laughs) Exactly. Well, maybe I guess we'll end there with what parents need to do in order to protect their children, because like we've talked about, that the testing, the grading, the teachers unions, all of that is not designed to actually help your children. So what can parents do to help their children? Uh, Homeschool, private educate your kids. (laughs) Exactly. Get get your kids out of the school districts. You're really misserving them by putting them there. And then when you educate your kids, listen to them, look for what they're interested in, wait for their eyes to light up on a subject, and then feed them as much of that subject as you possibly can. Give them as many opportunities to experience it as you can so that the student discovers what he loves and pursues it actively. And at some point, that student will not need to be pushed because he will have found what he loves and he will run after it. And then your job is to be a cheerleader and admire it. And, but you never need to critique your kids. Tests should just tell us what the kid didn't learn. There's, there is a place for testing. But it's just to tell us what he didn't learn in a subject so we can send him back to restudy that area. It isn't to give grades. Grades are punitive. They're a punishment. That's the purpose is to make the kid feel bad so he'll work harder and make the parents feel bad so they'll admit to working on the homework. You know, They're not constructed. So the best thing you can do, get your kids out of the district, homeschool them, private educate them, and admire the hell out of their work. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, We have so many things that we could talk about. I'm sure I'll have you on again about some of those other things. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Stephen Horwich, go to our show notes at theluminousmind.net. Also, be sure to become a subscriber to our free email list so you can receive notifications for our weekly audio blog, The Spark. We would love to have you join our program. Do so by going to the scheduling tab and become a fire starter today. Help support the podcast by making all your Amazon purchases through the free Amazon widget on our website, theluminousmind.net. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Google+. Get our audio content on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. Leave us a review. Tell us how we can help you so together we can continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education.